All right, so we are continuing our We Want a King series. And so, uh, and we're actually starting with a second king this Sunday. And so as this series, if you didn't know what it was, we're, st- we're going through First and Second Samuel and a bit of First Kings. And we're looking at the first three kings of Israel. Uh, first was King Saul, and then today we're going to start with King David. And King David is actually not going to become king today. He's going to be anointed king, but he's not going to become king today. King Saul is going to become king. And so we're going to begin, though, to look at the life of David. And what's fun about the life of David is we get to see what his life was like before he actually becomes king. We get to see what his life is like when he sits under a different king. And so we're going to really look at this king that God has picked to replace Saul. If you remember where we're at in the story, first part of the story is Israel essentially cries out. They want a king like the nations around them. So God gives them that king, and, they, and God gives them King Saul, who I've said is like a Thor-like looking guy. He's big. He's strong. He's beautiful. He's everything they wanted a king. So God makes Saul king. Saul has some successes, but then he also has a lot of failures, and his failures are really rooted in a disobedience of God. I would even say an indifference to God. And so God, because of those disobedience, it says, Saul, you're not going to be my king anymore. Your kids aren't going to be my king. You're not going to be my king. I'm going to pick and anoint a king that's a man after my own heart. And so that's where we get David. David is this king that's a man after God's own heart. And we're going to see this introduction to David today. Now, besides Jesus, there's probably very few or no other characters or people in the Bible that are talked about or described as much as David. He's one of the most described people. He's one of the most, we know a lot about his life. We know a lot about the things he did. It's almost as much as we know about Jesus, but obviously not quite there. Uh, And my own feelings about David, uh, they're a little bit complicated because you get David, this king, this, this guy that's a man after God's own heart. And there's these moments in his story where David is extremely virtuous, where he's doing the sort of things that I look up to. And then other reasons I love David is if you read the Psalms, which is in the Bible, it's like a prayer book of the people of God and song book of the people of God, you'll find a lot of Psalms that are written by David. And a lot of time when I'm reading his psalms, it's like he can put down to paper or papyrus, I don't know what, uh, better than I could like experiences of what it's like to be human in this world. Better than I ever could, more eloquently than I ever could. And so there are these moments where I'm reading David's psalms or I'm seeing these moments in his story where he's doing these virtuous things where I just love David. On the flip side of that, though, sometimes David is the worst, He's just the worst sometimes. Like, he, he's a womanizer. He ends up with probably around eight wives by the end of his life. He, uh, he's sexually coercive in moments. He's bloodthirsty. Like, there's a moment where God's like, hey, you've killed too many people. You can't keep, like, you can't build my temple. Like, you're, he's bloodthirsty. He, and, then he, and he's a murderer at one point. And so what do you do with a guy like David in the Bible? Where he has these moments where you're like, man, I look up to that, and then you have these moments where, like, you are horrible. You are a horrible human being, and I want nothing to do with you. What do you do with a person like that in the Bible? 
Well, one of my newest favorite authors over the last few years is named Eugene Peterson. He wrote the message translation of the Bible. He was a Presbyterian pastor. And he wrote this book called Leap Over a Wall. And he kind of talks through David's story and talks through David's life in a way that kind of engages us to have a more earthy spirituality, as Eugene Peterson talks about it. And in his, for one of his first chapters of that book, he, he talks about how we are to approach David, what we are to see about David when we read through this kind of complicated guy, or not complicated, but good and evil guy, what we do with that. And so I want to read this quote. It's a little bit long. It will be on the screen. But I think this is what we do with David. This is what we see about David. It's this. Eugene Peterson says this. David deals with God. As an instance of humanity in himself, he isn't much. He has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. From a purely historical point of view, he was a barbaric chieftain with a talent for poetry. But David's importance isn't in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience of and witness to God. Every event in his life was a confrontation with God. And Eugene Peterson there, when he says confrontation, he doesn't mean everything was a negative moment with God. He was just saying every part of David's life is an interaction with God. God and David meet all throughout David's life. And so when we read through David, who has these brilliant moments and these horrible moments, what we do with a guy like David in the Bible is we don't look to him as an example. We actually go, what David has to show us is God himself. That's what David has to show us. And unfortunately, in certain moments, what David is is also a mirror to us. He shows us who God is, but he also shows us a mirror to how we interact with God, how we act towards God, how we act in this world. And so as we look at the life of David, we, we look for God. We look for who God is. Our God is, is a God unlike what we would expect. He's not just a God that puts words on a paper. He's a God who's done things in history, and that's part of how we get to know him. And so God uses true stories of kings like David and his life to teach us about himself. And I I love that actually God uses stories to teach us about himself because stories are just so much more uh, enrapturing. they, they, They capture us so much more than just here's five things about me. Right? Stories help us to see and can kind of be drawn in. And so God uses David and his story and his life to show us who he himself is. And so here's what we're going to do as we start the life of David today in this We Want a King series. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, and we're going to kind of do what we do a lot in this series. We're just going to go through 1 Samuel 16 together. It's going to be a nice little story time together. We'll break it up into three different parts. We'll stop and we'll pause, and we're just going to understand and hear the story of 1 Samuel 16. I don't think there's enough, like, I don't think we can get enough benefit out of just hearing the stories of the Bible and letting them shape us and pour over us and letting us become familiar with them. And then after we've done that, what I want to do is I want to circle back to three different moments in 1 Samuel 16, three different moments in the story, and all three of those moments, I think, show us God, 
Show us who he is. Show us what he's like. Show us what he does. Okay, so we're going to go through the story and then circle back to three different moments, okay? So let's hop into it. We're in 1 Samuel 16. The words will be on the screen. I'm going to take a drink before I start reading. We're going to start with the first five verses and then stop for a bit. Uh, Verse 1 of 1 Samuel 16 says this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. So where we're at in the story, if you remember last week, God has just fully rejected Saul from kingship, saying, I'm going to set up a different king now. And now, if you don't remember Samuel, Samuel was this priest over Israel. He was even a judge. He was even a prophet. He was just this mighty man of God with a lot of integrity. And he was the one that God used to put Saul in place as king in the first place. And so Samuel is saddened by Saul's disobedience. He's saddened by the fact that Saul is not going to be king anymore. And so Samuel, like a good leader, is just crying and grieving over this. And God just kind of prods Samuel and says, Hey, are you going to just keep grieving? Like it's, The time for grief is, is over. I need to send you out. I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. You're going to anoint the next king. It's going to be one of Jesse's. Sons, So uh, fill your horn with oil and go. And Samuel, uh, you begin to see fear just abounds in this, the beginning of the story. Samuel's afraid because he goes, if uh, Saul, the king, the current king, God, uh, you know, you put him in place. Like if he finds out I'm going to go anoint another king, like he's going to kill me. That's how this whole king thing works. And, and God goes, you know what, you know, I think they're about due for a sacrifice. So go make a sacrifice and, and let that be one of your reasons for going there. They don't need to know everything that I'm doing, but they're, they're due for a sacrifice. So go. So Samuel goes to, uh, to make the sacrifice and to uh, anoint this king. And so as he shows up to Bethlehem, fear again is abounding. The whole, everybody in Bethlehem are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You see... If a man of God just shows up to where you're at, you're like, ah, this might not be good. <laughs> this might mean judgment. His name was literally a judge at one point, right? Like he was called a judge. And so they're like, this might not be good. Are, are you coming in peace? Like, are you bringing God's wrath and judgment? What's going on? And, hey, I've, I've come to, to do a sacrifice. Let's do this. Bring everybody to town, especially Jesse. If you could bring Jesse, make sure to bring him. Um, and so they start this sacrifice. And then let's see the next part of the story. Verse 6. When they came... He looked on Eliab, so this is Samuel, looked on Eliab, this is Jesse's first son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are, are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, or the smallest. But behold, he, he, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we'll not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and he brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Okay, well, let's pause there for a moment. So they're doing this sacrifice where the whole town of Bethlehem is showing up, and Je Jesse and his sons are coming in to do this sacrifice. And it, it seems to me like Samuel had some kind of side conversation with Jesse, like, hey, by the way, I'm about to anoint one of your sons. God has told me one of your sons is the next king. And so, you know, Jesse's like, of course, I knew that. And so he brings in his sons, and he brings in his firstborn, his oldestborn. And like most oldestborns, he's tall, he's strong, he's beautiful. I only say that because I'm an oldestborn. And so... Uh, <laughs> And so, and maybe I shouldn't relate to that so much, but uh, so Eliab comes in and, and Samuel, who, who sees a king that look, or a guy that could be king like Saul. Saul was strong, tall, beautiful. He goes, this is it. This is the guy. This is an upgrade. This is Saul 2.0. Great. And, and, and God says to Samuel, just, hey, stop looking at things the way you look at things. Stop looking at the outward appearance. We did the whole king with the great outward appearance thing. We're going to do something different now. You guys look at the outward appearance. I look at the heart. I'm going to pick a king that is after my own heart. And so Samuel's disappointed. Okay. Brings in the second kid. It's not him. Third kid. It's not him. Brings in the rest. It's none of them. Now, if I'm Samuel in this story, I'm kind of like, so it was none of them, Lord? Like, and I, I probably just like, I guess, I guess I didn't hear from God. And I, like, I'd go home. But Samuel is smarter than me. And he goes, wait, Jesse, are, is this all your sons? And, and, and Jesse goes, oh, there's another. He's the youngest, he's the smallest. He's, he's out with the sheep. That's, that's all we really trust him to do is to watch the sheep. Like, uh, like it's, it's, it's a necessary job, but like, that's, he's, yeah, we just, that's all he could do. So, so he goes, bring that, bring that guy, bring that guy. And this is David. And so David's entrance onto the scene in this story, where he's going to become the next king of Israel, is an entrance where he is the forgotten son. He is, he is the smallest. He is the youngest. He, does, he is handsome and has beautiful eyes, apparently. But, and ruddy. I think that means red. So he's got, like, red hair. Uh, we're just, like, gets hot and gets red outside a lot. I don't know, because he's outside with the sheep. But either way, but he's, David is this kind of forgotten, youngest, probably doesn't totally look like a king, small. And this is who God has picked because God has looked at David's heart, not at David's outward appearance. The, the, the son that even Jesse was like, well, okay, I'll bring all my sons, but that one, it, he's not going to be the king. So I could leave him out with the sheep. But that's who God has picked. And so God says, go ahead, anoint him. And so he takes a horn of oil. I don't know what the horn was, but it was probably maybe like a sheep's horn or a goat's horn. or I don't, I don't know animals. And so fills it with olive oil, and as was the custom, uh, poured it over David as it pours over him and anoints him as the next king of Israel, although he is not the king yet. He's just anointed the king. 
And in that moment, as the oil rushes over David, the Holy Spirit rushes over David. And it's this beautiful moment. Because especially back then, the Holy Spirit, how the Holy Spirit operated in the world, wasn't how it operates in the world now. The Holy Spirit kind of worked intermittently. It was sometimes in people's life, and sometimes wasn't. And so this is a very special moment happening where David is anointed. And so now we have this next king of Israel, this forgotten shepherd boy that his family didn't even care to invite him to the sacrifice. Let's keep going in the story. Well, almost as if to knowing that the reader was going to go, oh, what's happening to Saul right now? The story picks up in verse 14 with what's going on with Saul. So verse 14 says this. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who could play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, to, uh, by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly. And he, David, became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. So... Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Okay, so that's where we'll be, that's where we'll end in the story today. So the story goes back to Saul. Saul, who's been rejected as king, but is still actually king over Israel. The story goes back to him, and what we have found is that the spirit of the Lord that was intermittently with Saul as king over Israel, as king over God's people, the spirit of the Lord has left Saul. And in its place is some sort of tormenting, harmful spirit. Now, I don't know if you ever get this when you read the Bible. Sometimes you read the Bible just notice there's some troubling things in it. Where you kind of read it and you're going, like, that's, okay, that's kind of troubling. <laughs> like, that's kind of hard to read. This is one of those moments. And so a, a few things to help us with, with this kind of troubling moment. So there's some sort of tormenting spirit of, of the Lord, uh, or from the Lord in, in Saul's life. Here, here's one thing that will help us in, in understanding this more and what's going on here. Uh, the, the people that wrote this, or the person that wrote 1 Samuel, uh, and the people of God in that day, the way that they viewed God and life and the world was that everything came from God. That's how those people in that day viewed God. And especially, everything spiritual came from God in some sense. And so when they're using that kind of language, they would, pro they would probably mean it a little bit differently than how you and I would use that language of, of sending a spirit. But what happens is theologians now kind of go and they kind of debate and they kind of go, hey, is God allowing this tormenting spirit into Saul's life? Or is God kind of like guiding this spirit 
this tormenting spirit into Saul's life. And I don't know if we can know for sure from what the text says here, but another key thing to know is this tormenting spirit is in Saul's life not because God is just vindictive and mean and trying to hurt him. It's because Saul has begun to disobey God. Even after being warned, he continued in his disobedience. And so this harmful spirit has come into Saul's life because of Saul's actions. You'll find at least the theologians I'm reading will kind of all agree on that and say, listen, this is the, the, the writer of this is trying to make clear, like, this is in his life because of his own disobedience and sin. And so anyways, in the story, how, however you're going to kind of sit through what, that tough moment, there's this tormenting spirit in Saul's life. And it seems to be tormenting him kind of like emotionally. And so uh, his, his like court, of people are kind of like, well, we got an idea. Let's get some music playing, get some Maverick City music. You'll, you'll feel better in no time. Like, let's get somebody. And so one guy's like, oh, I know this guy, David. He's great. He's a man of valor. He's, the Lord is with them. He's a man of war. Like, let's bring this guy in. So they bring David in. And David, who unbeknownst to Saul, is in the next anointed king of Israel and has been anointed with the Spirit even, is now in Saul's court. And it is David who is comforting Saul. It is David's music and his singing that is sending this tormenting spirit away. And David becomes such an important person to Saul that uh, Saul begins to love David. It says he loved him greatly. And Saul says, you know what? I'm going to make you my armor bearer. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Jonathan and the armor bearer climbing up the mountain? So Saul makes David his armor bearer. And Saul begins to love David and the Spirit of, of God on David sends the tormenting, the tormenting spirit in Saul's life away. And so that's 1 Samuel 16. This is our introduction to David, the forgotten shepherd boy that's called into the king's court with the Spirit of the Lord on him that has all sorts of descriptions for the type of person he is. But now what I want to do is I want to circle back to three different moments in the story. Moments we've already talked about a little bit here and there. I want to circle back to three different moments in the story because there's three of these moments that speak to me about who God is. And I want us to get a glimpse more deeply of who God is. And so that's what we're going to do. So let's circle back to the three moments in the story. The first moment is this. The first moment in the story that I want to circle back to is uh, God's choice of David. And more specifically, not just God's choice of David, but when God tells Samuel the reasoning for his choice. When God says, hey, you guys look at the external, I look at the heart. I want to look at this moment, this phrase, what God has said. He says, I look at the heart, not the external, not the outward appearance. I look at the depths of a person. Because I think this has a lot to show us about who God is. Now, in the Bible, what you have to know about that word heart Heart was not quite how we use the word heart, right? Uh, it's not just emotions in the Bible, although it is emotions in the Bible. Like, your emotions came from your heart in the Bible. But the heart was much more robust. It was really like your inner person. It was like the core of who you were was your heart. And so in the Bible, it's your emotions, it's your willpower, it's your thoughts, it's, it's, all sort of, it's, your, it's your ability to, it's what's in you that can avoid sin versus choose sin. Like it, it's, it's, it's much more robust than just like, uh, you know, I live with my heart on my sleeve and I show my emotions a lot. It, it's a much more robust thing. And so God tells Samuel that although 
Eliab looks good and looks kingly. He's not looking for someone that looks kingly. He's looking for someone with a kingly heart. And God's decision here shows us that that he sees David not necessarily as more virtuous than Saul, although he probably was in certain ways. But what God knows about David, at least at this point in David's life, is that David's heart seeks after God. David's heart wants God. David's heart wants to obey God. Saul's heart does not. As I've been reading through 1 Samuel with you guys, what I've noticed about Saul is he, he really is kind of indifferent to God. If you, if you notice Saul, it seems like he's always kind of just focused on what's in front of him. It's like what he sees is, is what is most important to him. You just go back through his stories. It's like the problem in front of him is what matters most to him. The people complaining in front of him is what matters most. The people that are fearful in front of him is what makes him afraid. Saul's heart is indifferent to God. David's heart is not indifferent to God. And that's what God sees in David that makes him want to make David the next king over Israel. And and so what we can learn about God in his statement here to Samuel is this. God doesn't see things the way you or I see things. We, We can't talk about that enough. God does not see things the way that you or I do. A lot of times we think God sees things the exact same way we do. We think God has the same perspectives we have. That is not the case. God doesn't see things the way you or I do. God doesn't care about the external parts of you as much as he cares about what's happening in the core of you. He cares about what's happening in the depths of who you are as a person. He cares about your heart. I've said this in this series already. I'm going to say it again. If you're the sort of person that is running this rat race, this rat race of externally looking good, whether it's literally, socially, uh, to just emotionally look good to others, to spiritually look good to others, whatever way you're externally trying to look good, it is all for naught if your heart is a mess. If you look good on the outside to all of your social groups, but inside your heart is a mess, you're missing what's important to God. You're missing, you're not seeing things the way that God sees things. The core of who you are, your heart is what matters to God. Not how good you look spiritually. Not how good you look on the outside. What's going on in the depths of who you are? And this is why we have to, this is why paying attention to our our, our inner lives is so important for us as Christians. This is why constantly you'll hear me use this language of examining your heart and understanding your heart. Because this is what God looks at. God looks at that because he knows out of the heart comes everything else. God looks at our hearts. This is why things like counseling or therapy can be really helpful. Good counseling, good therapy will get down to the heart of what's going on in you. And it will help you to heal from things or help you to even reject and repent from things. Our hearts really matter to God. God looks at the heart. That's important for us to know about God. Because there's a whole bunch of us that treat our lives like a show. And God does not care about the show. He cares about what's going on in the depths of who you are. That's what God cares about. Your heart matters to God. God looks at the heart. All right, the second moment 
in this story that I want to circle back to is, is this whole situation with, with Saul and, and this tormenting spirit. And like I said, it's just a, it's a tough moment. It's a tough moment in the Bible. There's, a, one, there's this professor I really like who was at this conference of people who, who really love the Bible. And he got up and he said, hey, do you want to mess up your theology? And, they, and they're like, sure, whatever. Then read your Bible, is what he said. And the point he was making is this, is like the way you think about God and the way you understand God and the way you understand how this world works and the theology that you have, the theology you have for understanding the Bible, it often gets messed up when you actually read the Bible. Because <laughs> you, you encounter these moments in the Bible where you're like, wait, what happened? Like, what is that? What's going on there? And this is one of the, for me at least, this is one of those moments. And I wish I could say that as a, as a pastor, I'm, I'm the sort of pastor that I'm always going to like make those moments just not feel bad anymore. Uh, but I'm not that. So uh, they just might feel bad for you. But I want to circle back to this, this tough moment because I, as I've been studying this passage, I, some of the toughness of it went away and I began to see different things about God in this moment, in, in this situation with this tormenting spirit. Uh, in Saul's life. I actually began to see this scene as a sign of God's mercy and a sign of his pursuit of Saul rather than just a, a sign of some mean, angry God. Uh, here, here's why. I'll, I'll explain why. We have this, this evil spirit that's sent to, to Saul in some way, this tormenting on Saul's life. I think that's on Saul's life. And whether God's allowing it or God's got directly guiding it, we don't know. But you have this tormenting spirit in Saul's life. But then look what happens in the story. Look what happens in the story. David, the newly appointed shepherd boy, with the Spirit of God on him, is who ends up in Saul's court to comfort Saul. And it's that David who has the Spirit of God on him, which remember, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was intermittent. Not everybody had the Spirit of God. Sometimes people did, sometimes people didn't. And David has the Spirit of God on him, and it's that David with that Spirit of God on him that sends the tormenting spirit away. And to me, what I'm seeing is God's mercy and pursuit of Saul here. I feel pretty confident that at any moment in Saul's story, he could have repented and turned back to God. That God was inviting him, in, in a sense, to do that. But Saul's story, we see time and time again, that's not what he chooses. It's not what he wants. And Saul, who only sees what's in front of him, who's indifferent to God because he's focused on the problems and the pains of this world more so, who gets hungry for power even eventually, God puts David with the Spirit of God in front of Saul for Saul to see him. I think this is God's mercy and God's pursuit of Saul. He didn't have to let David come into his life. He didn't let, have to let David have the Spirit on him. He didn't have to let David's song playing with empowered by the Spirit to send the tormenting Spirit away. It's almost like God is like just trying to shake Saul and say, Saul, look, I'm here. I'm who you need. I'm who you want. Look, see me in front of you on David. I'm the one that can bring comfort. I'm the one that can send evil away. It's all to me. I see God's mercy. I see his love. I see his pursuit of Saul. Tim Keller has this quote 
where he talks about suffering, and I think this might be kind of what is happening with Saul. He says this, suffering is the stripping of our hope in finite things. Therefore, we do not put our ultimate hope in anything finite. Perhaps God is allowing this evil spirit, this tormenting spirit, into Saul's life so Saul's hopes in the finite things are stripped away. That Saul begins to hope in the only infinite thing in the universe, God himself. It's, to me, in this story, what I'm reading, it's just like God will not leave Saul alone despite Saul's wrong-heartedness. The Spirit of God leaves, and he comes right back in the back door. I'm here with David now. I want you to see me. It's like God is softening. He's like pulling out all the stops to get Saul to see him somehow. Further in the story, and I just think this is a merciful moment of God, is who's the person he uses to send the tormenting spirit away? It's David. And then what happens with Saul and David because of this? Saul begins to love David. Saul is going to be replaced by David. That's how the story goes. Saul's going to be replaced by David, and Saul's not going to want David to replace him. He's not going to want anybody to replace him. But God put the person that's going to replace him in his life in a way that Saul began to love him. Are you seeing God's mercy the way I'm seeing it? Like the person that's going to replace him is someone that Saul loves. Like Saul knows the judgment is coming. Saul knows what he's done wrong. He knows it's going to happen, but I think he's just indifferent to it because he's indifferent to God. And yet God is going, I'm going to soften the blow. I'm going to let the king that is going to replace you be someone you love, someone you care about, someone who has brought you comfort. Someone who's shown you my spirit. I can't help but see God's mercy to Saul, his pursuit of Saul here. Unfortunately for Saul, it seems like he just continually resists that. But I just see our loving, pursuing God here. He didn't have to be this merciful. He didn't have to send the tormenting spirit away through the power of his spirit. He didn't have to send David to be the one that he begins to love and grow a friendship and relationship with. But that's what God did. And so I know this story is tough, and I know we might want to see a cruel God here, but I just don't see a cruel God here. I see a God here who knows far more than I do, far more than Saul does, who is doing what he does, hopefully in order to reach Saul. Saul's just too thick-headed to see it, I think. Okay, the third moment in the story that I want to go back to is Samuel's anointing of David. I want to go back to this anointing of David. And this anointing of David where this oil is poured over David and he's kind of set to be the next king of Israel. It comes again with, with a rush of the Holy Spirit. And so we see this David, this anointed king, he's also anointed with the Spirit. And the reason I want to circle back to this part of the story is because David's anointing to be king, and his anointing of the Spirit reminds me of our anointing in the Spirit. Our anointing as God's people right here, right now, if you follow Jesus, if you believe in his death and his resurrection, you have been anointed by the Spirit of God, and me reading through David's anointing makes me remember our anointing by the Spirit. 
The way the Bible goes, the next person that's really anointed by the Spirit in a major way, it's Jesus. And Jesus Christ, Christ wasn't his last name. Christ meant anointed one, the Messiah. So Jesus, the anointed one, he's the next anointed one in the story. And Acts describes Jesus as being anointed by the Holy Spirit and with power. And then something really interesting happens once Jesus ascends to heaven with the people of God. The people of God, Christians, they begin to be referred to as the anointed ones. In 2 Corinthians, Paul, he he says that the people of God have been anointed and sealed with the Holy Spirit. John, the the friend, the disciple of Jesus, in one of his letters where he's even calling uh, the people of God children because of how much he loves the people of God, he goes, children, you've been anointed by the Holy One. So when I hear that language in the New Testament, and then I'm reading this story about David anointed as king, I can't help but remember that I'm anointed. Like, we are anointed. God's people are now anointed. The anointing that you and I have from the Holy Spirit is far better than the anointing Saul had or David had. This anointing that David has is a picture of a far greater and a far better anointing of the Holy Spirit that you and I have. Guys, we're not just people going to church that like Jesus. We're people that have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. I I wish I had some application point here for this. My application point is simply this. Don't forget your anointing. You've been anointed by the Holy Spirit, and you have the picture of David's anointing to know know what that's like. A horn of olive oil being dumped over you. If you ever tried to get oil off you, it's impossible. You and I, because of what Jesus did in the cross and the resurrection, have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is on us and has sealed us and has refreshed us and has filled us the way a a newly christened kingdom Israel would have been anointed. The Spirit covers you like oil on a king. One of the core parts of the gospel, in my opinion, is Jesus the King, God of the universe, has come close to us. That's one of the core parts of the gospel, in my opinion. And this idea of the Spirit anointing us is that Jesus the King, his Spirit has come close to us. So close, it's like oil pouring over us. So close, the Spirit lives in us. And whether you experience that to be true or believe that to be true, it is true if you've put your faith and so I want people to remember, you and I are anointed. And I, I think I'm the only one excited about this, but you and I are anointed by the Spirit. Like the Spirit of God is on us. It's not in our minute. It's far, that is wild to me. God is with us always to the ends of the age. I don't want us to, amen. I think a lot of times we, no, his Spirit's in you. His Spirit is on you. You can interact with the Spirit. Church, that anointing of the Spirit, that's the only reason why we can even deal with our messy hearts. Uh-oh, you're messy. Did church don't. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for creating us new hearts. Thank you for putting your spirit to work in our hearts and to live in our hearts. Thank you, God, for doing whatever it is that you are doing this morning, whether it's 
telling us something new or refreshing us or healing us or repairing us or even correcting us, God, and helping us to repent. God, may we not be like Saul, stuck. God, we love you and we need you. Help us to see and understand our anointing this morning. Amen.